You'll find it on page 531 of your Pew Bible. That's page 531 of your Pew Bible, and it's Psalm number 8. As we continue to study the Psalms in the evening, at least when I'm preaching, and then the pastoral epistles, uh, the next two Sunday mornings I'll be preaching from 1 Timothy. But tonight, Psalm 8. Now, we did look at Psalm 8. I, I am aware I'm not having a senior moment. I do know that we considered Psalm 8 a few uh, weeks back, about a month back, uh, right after uh, VBS. But in that uh, sermon, I really was just looking at Psalm 8 in sort of a big picture way. We noted that Psalm 8 is really important for us to think about in our own cultural moment. We live in what's called a post-Christian, that is after Christianity, Western society, And as part of living in a post-Western society, a post-Christian society, is that it is very in vogue, it is very cool, it is very popular to take nonstop shots at Christians, at Christian history, at the Bible, um, at creation, and everything else that Christians believe. But we we noted last time that uh, that's all uh, fair and good, so to speak, in the big war of ideas, but that when... The secularist, when the common Western man or woman is then asked to present their views and their history and their record, uh, the situation changes. And what we see very quickly is that the secular view of creation is nothing uh, short of a horror show. The secularist uh, in our society, the dominant philosophy in our society says that chance and violence are what lie at the heart of all things. Our existence here, our presence here even tonight is fully and completely a matter of chance. And whatever you are today, you got through violence, through a long period, billions of years of violence of the strong devouring the weak. And so um, you end up with a story that may sound at first uh, very scientific and maybe more... um, attractive than the Christian story of creation, but yet in the end when it's really laid out, it's quite brutal, um, quite awful, and absolutely hopeless to the core, and is designed to be that way. And then for whatever reason, we seem surprised that secular modern people in the West are so hopeless and cynical and discouraged and more depressed than possibly any a group of people in the history of the world, certainly the most medicated of any group in the history of the world. And none of this is surprising if your whole life you've been told uh, that your life is an accident and is, the, the, is just really the result of mindless violence occurring over millions of years. Now, what's interesting about this new paganism that we're moving back into as a Western society is that it's not as different as you might think from the old paganism. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful essay about this. He talks about the different creation narratives that he found in Norse myths and other myths from different cultures and how they all kind of come back to violence and chance, not unlike uh, the new creation myths that are being formed in our society. But when we turn to God's word, when we turn to places like Psalm 8, we're given such a refreshing view that we're here for a reason, that God made us in his image, and that what really lies at the heart of everything is love, intentionality, relationship, order, beauty, and that, yes, those things have been lost temporarily in what is a horrible, horrible tragedy, but we have not yet totally lost our dignity or our importance in the plan that God has. And so life, instead of being some kind of cruel joke, is actually a tragedy that turns into a glory story. And the solution we noted as well last time, the solution is very different in these two creation narratives. In the secular creation narrative, the solution is the extinction of mankind. More and more secular people speak with only half-concealed glee of the day when man will be extinct and nature will be allowed to go on without him. Christianity takes the complete opposite direction. It believes that mankind belongs here and actually is supposed to be here in order to care for things, to, as Adam did, tend the garden. And so the Bible says that the solution to our problems is not the extinction of man, 
but the glorification of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes the second Adam and brings justice, peace, love, order, and wholeness to the entire universe. So it's a beautiful a beautiful contrast. I hope in laying it out last time, I, I helped you, encouraged you, maybe even gave you some things to think about or at least share with others. Tonight, though, I want to approach Psalm 8 very differently. Tonight, I want to look at it more verse by verse and more as David intended it. Uh, David wrote it as a worship song, a song of worship for the believing community. So I'm preaching tonight more to us as Christians and what David is trying to teach us here in his beautiful poem. And so that's the focus we'll take. We also want to, as we study it, consider why the New Testament uh, quoted this psalm three times and at key moments in the life of Christ and what makes it so important for us. And so those are some of the things we'll consider this evening as we look at this psalm, but from a different angle. With that introduction, and I hope helpful, I ask you to stand as we read God's word. And we'll read Psalm 8 together. Follow along, please, as I read. The psalmist begins by saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, as we come once again to study your word, we would pray that you would speak to us through the mouths of infants, even through my infant mouth, in all of my foolishness and in all of our collective sin and weakness, would you be strong and show yourself strong? Would you encourage us and direct us, inform us, rebuke us, whatever needs to be done in each and every heart? Do your good work in us, for we are dependent upon you. And above all, Father, direct us to your Son, who has fulfilled this psalm and is even now at your right hand. In our manhood, a true human body, representing us in heaven, how we thank you for that hope and comfort tonight. And we ask it all in his name and through his ministry. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As I've mentioned before, the Psalms are very different than the other books in your Bible. The other books in your Bible were written pretty quickly, probably at one time, most of them by one author. The Psalms are not like that. The Psalms were collected over hundreds of years, and priests, and we don't really know who those priests were, actually, eventually put them in the order you have them. And we trust that the Lord um, supervised that process, of course, and lined them up the way they're lined up. And it was very well done, very intelligently done. So we noted before, the Psalms then begin with two opening Psalms. They're very much, I think all scholars agree that they were put there very intentionally. And they teach you how to enter into the book. Psalm 1 tells you that the righteous man or woman, the person who's walking with God, is the person who is going to flourish like a tree and enjoy the Psalms and get a lot out of them. And so Psalm 1 teaches us about the wisdom of following God and listening to his word. And then Psalm 2 introduces us to the other major theme of the Old Testament, which is kingship. So Psalm 1, you have a law and wisdom. Here's what it means to walk with God. Here's why it's wise. Here's how you'll flourish. And then Psalm 2 redemption, a king, and what we call eschatology, how everything is going to end up in the end. And so Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, because he's going to win. And so as you read the psalms, 
beware that these are the psalms of King Jesus. They are all, in a sense, royal psalms that he fulfills. So those two opening psalms really are, are teaching us how to enter and preparing us to enter the psalms. But then the, uh, the Holy Spirit chose to do something really interesting. Immediately, beginning in Psalm 3, we are plunged down into the worst moments of David's life. Psalms 3 through 7 are all probably from the time of Absalom's rebellion, which if you know David's life, this is the most stressful, heartbreaking, dangerous time in his entire life. And so after entering us sort of into the Psalms, we're immediately plunged into how difficult life can be. And Psalms 3 through 7 are all about crying out to the Lord. You, You see the psalmist in one, he's trying to get to sleep. In another psalm, he's just woken up and he's saying, Lord, thank you. I made it. I survived one more night. I mean, they're very, very powerful psalms spoken from a place of tremendous distress. Now we come, Psalm 8, to the very first psalm of praise. This is our first, you might say, purely worship psalm. It is all in second person. It's all an address. You, Lord, are this. You are this. You are this. It's less about David, his feelings, uh, what he's going through, right? It's rather just praise. It's just worship. It's just talking about the greatness and goodness of God. But in doing that, just, and we've only gone eight Psalms in now, you can see how well constructed already the book of Psalms is. It gives you a psalm for all different kinds of experiences. When we need to know how to read scripture, we can listen to Psalm 1 and 2. They teach us to listen and learn. When we need to cry, I mean really cry out in distress, we have Psalms 3 through 7. And when it's time to worship, we have Psalm number 8. And we'll see that as we go along. The psalms have this wonderful depth and diversity that sadly, some of our modern worship has it, but a lot of it doesn't. Uh, We in our context tend to create a lot of worship music, which is great. We need to praise the Lord, right? But the modern church has not done as well at creating psalms like Psalm 3 through 7, crying music, um, asking God for justice, asking God for forgiveness in a pleading way. The psalms have it. (laughs) They've got it all, and God has so blessed us. But tonight we come again to a psalm of just sheer delight, sheer praise, and it's just a glorious, glorious psalm. Now, as you're looking at Psalm 8, uh, remember a couple things. One, the verse numbers are not inspired. (laughs) And we tell you this sometimes as pastors. Some of you even may have Bibles. They're making them now that don't have verse numbers uh, so that you just keep reading and you treat it more like text and less Uh, like individual little parts. I'm not sure it's the greatest idea because it's hard to reference things that way. But there is some value to it occasionally because it reminds you the numbers are not inspired. And that's the case as we begin this psalm because this psalm has a chorus. This worship song has a chorus. And it's the first part of verse 1. And then it's the chorus, much as we do with hymns, is sung again at the end of the psalm. So look at verse 1. It begins, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look down at verse 9. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So right here at the beginning of our worship song, we are met with praise that is both passionate and theological. Because this is a very deep and well-thought-out statement. It is both passionate and personal, and yet very carefully crafted theologically by David. You can feel the passion in the words he uses about God. O Yahweh, our Adonai. That's what's in the original language here. You see the word Lord all capitalized. That is Yahweh, whenever you see that in your Bible. And for David... Those names uh, were important. And what he says here is, is very meaningful, meaningful. Yahweh, the gift of the name Yahweh to Moses, is considered by the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, as God's greatest revelation of himself. Prior to knowing Yahweh, Jews would use just a generic word for God, Adonai or Elohim. But these were generic words. These were words that everyone around them used when they spoke to their gods too. 
But Moses is re-gifted. Abraham knew this name too, but Moses was re-gifted, if you will, with this name Yahweh. And it becomes the very personal, more intimate name for God as the covenant God, as the one who delivered them in the Exodus. And, and that's the background for David. David knows when he's saying Yahweh, he's thinking about the Passover. He's thinking about the blood on the doors. He's thinking about the Red Sea being parted. He's thinking about how in that moment, Yahweh came down and showed himself to be their God and visited them and delivered them from their enemies and distinguished himself from the Elohim of Egypt, the gods, little g, all these little fake gods that they lived around all the time that they had to build monuments to because they were slaves. Yahweh came and revealed himself and they began to call him Yahweh. And that is one of the great gifts of the old covenant. So he says Yahweh, but he says our Adonai. Again, as English speakers, that may not strike us as very powerful, but for David, it was very, very important. He's saying that this Yahweh who made all things, who defeated the Egyptian gods, who made the world, is the Lord, the personal Lord of the people of Israel. He's our God. He's our God, and we are his people. So you feel the emotion of that, don't you? That here David is surrounded by all these nations that are much bigger and much more sophisticated in many ways than Israel. And yet he says, here is the joy of Israel. Here's, here's why it's wonderful to be an Israelite. Not because we have more armies, not because we have more money, not because we have more people, but we have Yahweh. He's our Lord. He's our God. And we are his people. So there's great passion here in the chorus. There's also great theology, because notice how David puts it. And we would never write this, but David, being an old covenant believer, uh, does it so well. How majestic, he says, is your name in all the earth. Why didn't David just say, God, you are majestic in all the earth? That's what we would say. David, as a Jew, understands that it is very important to put a distance between God and the creation. Not to say that God isn't present with us, but he's aware that people always want to make God into a created being, an animal, an angel, something that's created. And so he does hear what we see in many places of the Old Covenant. He does a very careful theology. It is not Yahweh who is seen in the creation. You cannot see Yahweh. You do not, when you meet a tree <laughs> in your forest walk, you have not seen Yahweh. You cannot see Yahweh in every tree and in every bird and every song. It sounds like something might be said in our culture. The Bible says that's nonsense and that's idolatry. You do not see Yahweh. You see his name. You see his glory. You see his fame. You do see his character. He is revealed in creation. But David does here, and it's many places in the Old Covenant, very careful theology, lest the people take this psalm and go in the wrong direction with it. You do not see an image. You do not see a thing that you are to fall down in front of and worship. What you see, what you see majestically, especially in the stars and in the planets, are not your gods or Yahweh up there in a bright light, which is what basically everyone believed at that time except David. Rather, you see the name. You see the name of Yahweh, his glory, his fame, his creativity, his beauty, his power, his attributes. And so there's a wonderful, beautiful mix here in the chorus of deep theology and passion. Sometimes in our context, I think, as uh, modern Western Christians, when someone says, we're going to sing a chorus, our first thought, especially if you're a little cynical, is, oh, it's not going to be very theologically sound. Or it's going to be very, very simple, and we're just going to sort of repeat the same words over again. Well, that is not true of the great choruses of Scripture. This is a profoundly theological chorus. And David has very wisely, you notice, put it at the beginning and at the end. He has framed, he's surrounded what he's about to say by this chorus. Now, we'll get more into this. You'll see it as we go along. But let me just give you a hint as to why he's doing it. David is about to say wonderful things about what God has done for mankind. But he wants to make sure at the beginning of this worship song and at the end 
to frame that and put it in a context. Man has great things. God has done great things for us. But it is all within the context of the majestic name of God and all the earth. We can only understand ourselves, our children, the people around us, if we understand ourselves in that context as the people of God, as his creation. And so there's this wonderful balance that comes to the whole psalm as beginning and end, he reminds us that although man is glorified in the middle, that glory of man takes place under the majesty of God who rules over all things. So that is the chorus to the psalm. It then has three stanzas or three verses, and each reveals a different wonder. David in this psalm is like a man or a woman who's writing a song, and when you write a really great song or a poem, if you've ever done this, usually you do it out of wonder. You love someone so much, you've had an experience that's so powerful, and so you write out of that wonder. Well, David here gives us three wonders in three stanzas, three verses to the psalm. And the first is this. The first wonder is that God's name is majestic in the strange way in which he wins. God's name is majestic in the strange way in which he wins. This is the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. Let's look at it together. David says, You have set your glory above the heavens, but out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. The first wonder is this, that God has such incredible glory, but that he works through infants. Now to feel the weight of this, to feel how strange it really is in some ways, you have to begin, as David does, by getting in your head the scope of God's glory. It begins by recognizing that God's glory, as he says here, is above the heavens. In other words, there's no end, there's no limit, no exceptions. God's glory is not confined to our creation or to our lives or to our universe. It inhabits fully the spiritual realms, the physical realms, and then it overflows. His name is glorious here on earth, which is his footstool, and his name is glorious in heaven, his throne room. Probably the best picture we ever get of this outside of the book of Revelation comes to us in Isaiah 6. Remember that passage. Isaiah is caught up into heaven. Listen to these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Here's the point. Even heaven, even heaven shakes with the praise and the glory of who God is. His glory fills earth, then fills heaven, and then runs over and shakes heaven and earth. And then suddenly David is saying this, and then suddenly, what does he do? We go from the smoking, shuddering throne room. We're shot back down to earth, but not into a temple or to the pulpit or into a cathedral, but into the nursery, into the cry room outside those doors. This incredible being is using babies and infants to deal with those who oppose him. It can be translated, out of the mouths of infants, you have set up a fortress or a wall. In fact, the language here is somewhat threatening. When it says in English, you silence your enemies, the sense of those words is more than just quieting them, but putting them down finally and fully, putting them in the grave. Now, how does God do that? What did David have in mind? Well, first, remember that God can always just raise up another generation, can't he? We've seen that so many times. One generation hates him, the other repents and turns to him. He can, he can turn the whole course of things through children, through babes and infants. He can get the praise, second, that he deserves from them. 
Some translate this in the Greek, uh, the old Greek versions of the Bible, establishing praise. And you can put it that way. He establishes praise that when adults who are cynical, who, who hate him, maybe refuse to give praise to him, he can then establish his praise in the mouths and cries of just infants or the words of just children. But the best way, I think, to grasp what David is after here is to look at the rest of the Bible and how it uses this idea. We can't go everywhere, of course, but think for a moment why David would think this. Why did David write this? Think about his own story. David is the eighth son. Now, we love all our children, and uh, we love every child the Lord gives us, but how excited was his dad, Jesse, when he had his eighth son? I mean, he was, he was excited because it was a son, right? But let's be honest. Uh, we know how this goes, right? Parents, the first two get the best out of you, and then after that, it's just you try to hold on and and do a decent job, right? So David grows up his whole life as the eighth son. He is the most expendable guy you can imagine. And that's why when Samuel comes, his dad doesn't even bother to call him in from the fields. And that's also why David is doing one of the worst jobs in Middle Eastern society, which is shepherding. So Jesse's saying, this son, I love him, but if one of them has to be out there where he might get eaten by an animal or die Uh, out in the elements, it's going to be my eighth son. And yet God chooses him to be the greatest king in history. It doesn't stop there, though, does it? Because we all know that the greatest story of something weak defeating something strong, even in our culture, we know this story, David and Goliath, right? David goes out as a shepherd boy with a sling and refuses even to wear the armor, and God brings this gigantic trained soldier fully armed down through David. So when David writes in poetry here, Father, you know how to destroy the strong with the weak, to establish praise out of the mouths of infants, to use what the world sees as helpless and hopeless to get a victory. He knows what he's talking about. It's his own story. More importantly, though, this whole thing is seen most clearly, this whole dynamic is seen clearest in the Christmas manger and in the day of Palm Sunday. The manger, because all the world missed the birth of the greatest human being who had ever lived. All the wise people, except for a small handful, all of the rulers of the world opposed it. Herod tried to have him killed. Everyone was against it. And God placed his king, our eternal savior, in a manger, in a peasant's home, in a backwater little town in Israel. That's establishing praise against your enemies in the mouth of a baby. Everything they tried to do to keep that little baby from having life and crying out to its mother, and there's Jesus in the manger. He lives. A praise is established. But Jesus uses this psalm explicitly in Matthew 21 a second time. He enters Jerusalem it's the height of his ministry. He's about to go to the cross. He comes in, you'll remember, we, we call it Palm Sunday in our context. Everyone is, is, all of his disciples are worshiping him. But all of the elites of society, the priests, uh, the political arm of the Jewish people, all the people who are anybody are very upset about this very distasteful, overdone ceremony that they're seeing happening. And they, they come to Jesus and they say, don't you see what people are saying. They're saying, Hosanna, come now, save now, Lord, thou son of David. And they're indignant. And Jesus turns to them and says, have you not heard? And he reads this passage, out of the mouths of babes and infants. In other words, you've rejected me, all the people who are important. And God has taken these little kids who are running around the temple and they're saying, Hosanna, because God is establishing praise here. You won't give me, you see, You won't give me the praise I deserve as I have come to my temple. The Lord whom you seek has suddenly come to his temple, just as has been promised for thousands of years. I've come, and you don't love me, and you won't praise me. And so the Lord has filled these children with a spirit of praise to defeat you and to silence you ultimately. And that's exactly what happened. And Jesus quotes these verses. 
So the first stanza, the first line of this hymn is we are to rejoice in the majesty of God's name because he wins in his own strange and glorious way. We praise him for the way he wins. And of course, that's what he's doing today too. Remember what 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then Paul goes on to say, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. He chose infants in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, and here's why, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the strange way in which God wins in our world, and David says it's one of the ways his name is majestic. God in his power allows himself, and never forget this, he allows himself to be challenged. Satan only exists because God allows him. God grants him life every moment. He could snuff him out in an instant. He's a created being. God allows Satan because as Satan rages against him, God pushes him aside with just the effort of his hand through infants and thereby glorifies himself. Now, he'll not always do that. There is a day coming when he will crush Satan. But for now, he glorifies himself by winning because it doesn't take that much effort. A couple months ago, my daughter Beth decided that I was a lot older than I actually am. If you're wondering, I'm 43. But I think in Beth's mind, I was much, much older and, and weaker and I don't normally rise to these kinds of challenges. I try to be sort of above them. But I felt like it was a moment of learning. So I picked her up and threw her up in the air several times and caught her and then threw her on the couch. And she giggled. She enjoyed it. It was, it was a fun moment. And then I told her I'll never do it again because I could pull my neck out and I might be hurt for weeks. But, but I just wanted her to see not only did I have the strength to pick her up and carry her if I needed to, but I could also protect her if it really came to it. And I wasn't quite as weak and fragile as she thought I might be. Well, God, in a way, infinitely more powerful. He wants us to see. He wants us to look back through history and in scripture at how he takes what is so weak and, even, and it's just nothing to him. You know, I threw Beth up in the air because I wanted her to really see. It's not just that I can pick you up. It's that I can throw you around up in the air. So my strength is not just barely sufficient to firemen carry you out of a burning house, but I can do it very vigorously, right? That was the point. Well, so much more so with our God. He can defeat his enemies in these really simple ways. You know, all the people we think are so powerful right now, you know who I'm talking about. The people have all the money and all the power in our society. You know what they're all doing? They're all dying, some of them rather ra rapidly, right? And what God's saying here is, I can just raise up another generation. Do you think he's intimidated by our culture? No, he can just raise up another generation of humans to praise him. He's not intimidated. In fact, he wants us to see that he's not even using the bright and the best. He's using us because he wants to glorify himself. Because his power is so great, he doesn't need great weapons. This is the praise of the first verse. His name is majestic in the amazingly strange way in which he wins. Second verse, verses 3 and 4. His name is also majestic in the way he surprisingly cares, cares so much about us. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Just like verse 1, to get the full weight of it, you have to start with how great his power is. David is looking up 
Remember, no electric lighting, so he's seeing an amazing set of stars. I've gotten to see this just a few times, once in the Dominican Republic on a beach pretty far from most electric lighting, and I can just tell you it is a completely different experience uh, than seeing stars here. Um, It is overwhelming. So David is looking up. He's in the Near East, and he's looking up at night with no ambient lighting, and he's seeing all of these stars, and he's saying, God, you have You've created this entire galaxy, and he doesn't even realize it's not just ten thousands of stars, it's millions of stars as we know now, right? You've created all this stuff, and yet he's not super interested in all of it. And not to say he doesn't rule over it, but what David says here literally is you don't visit those stars. You don't send your son to those planets. Who is it you are mindful of here? The word literally in verse 4, remember him. Who is it's on your mind? Who is it that you care about? It's us. Out of all these vast galaxies, all of these stars and massive planets, it's just this one little rock. And it's just this one little group of people on this one little rock that God cares so much about. I like the way the King James translates that last phrase in verse 4. And the Son of Man, it says, that you visit him. And I love to do, that they do that because it's a very important Hebrew word. It does mean to visit. It's the word Joseph, as he's laying dying, says to his brothers, you're going to be in Egypt for a while, but the Lord will visit you and bring you up out of your slavery. And this really is, it should take us immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been visited not by just another prophet or just another priest, but God the Son has come down to us in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and walked among us. And David is just marveling that the God who spun all of this into existence with just his fingers, notice again, it wasn't even that hard, is so interested in this one little place. Nowhere captures this better, and I know it's a favorite of many of you, But nowhere captures it better than Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and why I rise up. Why would a God who makes a universe care when you sit down and when you rise up, right? You discern my thoughts from afar. My thought life isn't that interesting. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. We sense this tension all the time in our world and in our lives, and it's good that we do so. We are both small and important. We are both small and important. Even secular people, unbelieving friends and family have to admit this contradiction in their own lives. We see it all around us in our culture. When we're talking about abortion, we're we're told by the secularist that we're small, that man is just a clump of cells and chemicals and that it doesn't matter. And yet that same person who says that people are just small, we're just specks on this one little rock, that same person will take to the streets with signs and maybe even violence. Because deep down, though they want to say that we're just specks on a rock, they know deep down that we're not, that human beings do have dignity, that human life has dignity. And so our culture is living in this horrific contradiction that it cannot find itself out of. We know that there are human rights. We know there's human dignity. And that's correct. And yet we can't account for our own view of ourselves that says we're small and pointless and random and clumps of cells. And so they live, they live unless they come to Christ, they live in that contradiction their whole life. It's so tragic. But as Christians, we can see what this is about. We can see it in verse 2. This is the, the quandary of this second verse. We are both small and important. And we have to hold those two things, one in each hand at all times. We are small, just specks on this rock from one vantage point. 
And yet we are so loved and so known that our Heavenly Father knows our thoughts and our words before we even speak them and even knows the numbers of the hairs of our head. And so it is so beautiful to think on these verses, three and four, and to remember that our God loves us, though we are tiny, and in loving us gives such great dignity to us. These verses also point us back and forward, as the whole psalm does, to the great day of visitation. What is man that you should visit him? And God has done that, hasn't he? In a way that David probably knew about, but not fully. The son of man, and remember, that was his favorite name for himself. The son of man came and he dwelt with us. And not as a angel or just a spirit, but took our flesh. And and in Christ, we saw as never before that we are both weak and small in many ways, and yet entirely important. And at the very heart of what God is doing in the universe. Because why else would he send his son? If you're struggling at all tonight, and I know uh, someone here is, maybe many of you, you're feeling that life is fairly random and hopeless. I think, especially our young people, I think struggle with this, feeling that life is very random and hopeless and meaningless. And, And maybe you've had things happen in your life that just seem like senseless violence. You've lost someone that you love to some rare disease that just doesn't make any sense. Why did this even need to happen? The greatest comfort I can give you is that God is not playing a trick, that it's not meaningless, that it's not accidental. How do I ultimately know that? How can you ultimately know that? Because if you're just playing a game, you don't send your one and only son into the game to suffer and to die and to live the way Christ did. When God the Father sent his son into our world, he told us in the clearest possible terms, I love you, I care about you, I'm totally invested in what happens on this little planet. It is my heart is on this little planet. My heart is with the people on this little planet. Even though, yes, I made lots of solar systems, what is man that he's mindful of him? What what are we? We're made in his image, and he truly cares. And therefore, life isn't meaningless and hopeless and random and awful and terrible, an ocean of violence. Rather, it is a story, and God says that story is coming to the end, and he's fully invested in how it ends. So God's name is majestic because of the strange way in which he wins. He wins by only using a fraction of his power, by using infants and weak ones like us. His name is majestic in the way he cares so much about people that are so small in the big scheme of things. And then thirdly and lastly, God's name is majestic in the way he shares so generously with mankind. Verses 5 through 8, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. One of Satan's biggest tricks with us, one of the ways he tries to get at me, tries to get at you every day, is to convince us that God doesn't want to share the good stuff with us, that he is not really generous or just a little generous, that you've got to earn it. Have you struggled with that feeling? you got to earn it, earn it all, and that he's kind of stingy about giving it. You sort of have to, you know, twist his arm to get the good things. Eve, our first mother, believed that. Satan told her, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's holding back this tree from you that would make you so much more glorious, so much more powerful, so much happier because he doesn't really have your best interests in mind. In fact, God's kind of insecure. He's afraid that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. You see, he's got everything, and he's insecure about it and doesn't want to share it. That was Satan's temptation. And Satan uses that trick in our lives. He uses the tricks of everyone we, in the lives of everyone we know. He's using that trick all the time. Well, David here corrects this, and he says it's majestic One of the majesties of God's name is how generous he is with mankind. 
because he has shared his glory and his person with us. He has made us in his image. In fact, the words here are a little bit controversial, a little bit controversial, because literally, verse 5 reads, you have made him a little lower than the Elohim. So the word can be, as you have here, heavenly beings. It can also be translated as God. You've made him a little lower than God. You've made him a little lower than the angels. Angels is probably correct. But you'll notice if you go back and look at our Psalter that we just sang, they kind of did both. They wanted to cover both bases. And so they say that we're made right below the God of love and under the angels. So God has not been stingy with us. He has granted to us the most wonderful thing that he has. The most wonderful thing he has is that he's immortal. He's deathless. And he's given to every single human being, whether they believe on him or not, an immortal soul. Why would he do that? He's already got everything. He didn't do it for himself. He did it out of his generosity for us. And he elevated us and gave us dignity, great dignity. He crowned us with glory and honor. Dr. Boyce, uh, James Boyce, when he preached on the psalm many years ago, he pointed out to his congregation that David could have said, the Holy Spirit could have said here, that man was made a little higher than the animals. And that's a very different thing than what's here, right? A little lower than the angels. It's much higher, much closer to the throne. Glorious, glorious grace and power that has been given to man. Now, because of our illness, because of our weakness, because of our sin, because of aging and all the things we experience in this life, it's hard for us to feel that. We feel very small and fragile, But I would argue to you that even today, if you look around, the the dominance and the glory is there. Look at the skyscrapers that we build, the poetry we write, the things we design, what we're doing with computers, the surgeries. Ask the medical people in our community, the surgeries and procedures that we're doing. And now to make them more precise, we're doing them with robots that we made because we found we can make robots that are even more precise than the human hand at cutting or designing flesh or healing someone, right? This is all because we're made in the image of God. And because he's not insecure, he's not stingy, he has actually poured out his love on us. Now that has been, to some degree, lost because of sin. But we know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this is coming back. And that's the point that the book of Hebrews is making that Elder Boyajan read earlier, that all things have been placed under our feet through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things under his feet, but that day is coming. For this reason, it's been the church's practice for many years to sing Psalm 8 on Ascension Sunday. That is the Sunday the church remembers Jesus' ascension up into heaven, the church would sing Psalm 8. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven with a fully human male body, a real male body, mankind was all lifted up with him. We now have a glorified man in heaven. And therefore, God's name is majestic in all the earth, not just for the way he wins, not just for the way he cares, but the way in which he has endowed, blessed us in every possible way. One Puritan puts it this way, man, man is what he is because the son of God has taken upon him man's nature. Man is very near to God, higher than the angels because the Christ is both God and man. That's the argument of Hebrews. Jesus is not an angel. He's God and man. But he shows that man's place in creation is his in Christ. His destiny, as depicted in the psalm, is not and cannot be accomplished outside of Christ. So once again, as each verse, we've seen this, I hope, each verse finds its fulfillment in Christ. So the Lord's name is majestic. It's majestic in the earth, the way he wins, the way he loves, and ultimately in the glory of God 
he gives. The stars are amazing. They're stunning. But even more so, the God who wins through weakness. The planets are incredible, the rivers and the valleys. But God's love, his richest love, is is saved for us, not the valley or the mountain. And it is to us and with us that God came and dwelt among us. This is the wonderful joy and majesty of God's name in all creation. Pastor Tim Keller, uh, you probably know that name for many years, ministered in Manhattan. And as you can imagine, uh, in that ministry, he was doing apologetics just sort of nonstop everywhere he went as being a very secular, very anti-Christian kind of environment. And he did, I think, a really good job of loving people there and impacting them for the gospel. And when he would often talk on many occasions, he would say to people, you know, you should hope that the Christian story is true. You should hope it's true. Even if you don't like it, you should hope it's true. Because it says that we're loved. It says that we have dignity. It says that we are royal. And it says that God has a plan. It has a stunningly high view of people. One of the great ironies of our time is that we call ourselves humanists, and yet our view of ourselves, where we came from and who we ultimately are, is so low. It's so brutal. You talk to cynical people today and they say, well, you know, eventually the sun will burn out and we'll all freeze to death, or it'll burn too hot and we'll all burn to death, but either way, we're all dying in some kind of catastrophe and that will be the end. No one will remember and no one will ever care. And yet here we have in Psalm 8 such a beautiful, beautiful story and true story of who we are and why we're here. So when you're struggling with discouragement, struggling to feel that life is meaningless, that humanity is hopeless, and if you watch the news, you have that feeling all the time, don't you? There is no hope for humankind that it's just one mess after another. Here's hope. God's name is still majestic in all the earth. Dale Ralph Davis is a wonderful Old Testament character, uh, commentator rather, um, does some wonderful sermons. And I'll end with what he says about this psalm. And it's very encouraging. It has been to me all week. He says, how can you doubt, how can you doubt your royal future when the man Jesus has already begun enjoying it? How can you doubt your royal future when the man, Jesus, has already begun enjoying it? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this beautiful hymn of praise, how it reminds us of your power and love. And though we are amazed at creation, we must follow David in saying that we are even more amazed at saving grace. For as amazing as the stars are, and the woods, and the mountains, it is even more amazing that you love, that you win, and that you have glorified us, adopted us into your family, and given us a future. So fill your people with praise at creation, but at a greater praise for grace. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.